so that is the the difference between gita and other texts and uh, secondly it is quite scientific also you can understand it through using scientific method also and uh, this part this second part there are these analysis i mean when we say human being human being we have a psychology and that psychology how does it work so in the ancient days the rishis found a way of classifying the quality the temperament the mentality of people by the gunas they said the gunas the nature modalities and they said nature is made up of three gunas that is sattva rajas and tamas sattva is clear rajas is active and tamas is dull or inert inertia so you can say clarity activity or dynamics and inertia these three qualities they mingle and they mix and they create all this varieties that we see all the variety is caused by the mixing of these three qualities so sattva is a quality which brings clarity and rajas is a quality which brings activity action and tamas is a quality which brings inertia and these influence us all of us go through these three types of gunas in a cyclic one followed by the other sometimes sattva comes to the top sometimes rajas comes to the top sometimes tamas comes to the top so the 14th chapter is about this recognition of the gunas how to diagnose what are our gunas and depending on the gunas we make our decisions the food we eat the way we worship and the choice we make are all influenced by the gunas the satvik people they are pure they are more scholarly they are uh, calm and they are pleasant people uh, rajasik people they are active they are restless they like to possess they like to dominate that is all rajasik quality and the tamasik is those who are very dull and lazy and uh, sleepy that is the tamasik quality so based on these three qualities we see this difference in human nature human quality and you may say that even the caste system in india which is which was actually as a classification of human beings it is not so bad but when it became rigid hereditary then it caused a lot of problems it has it's not a good thing but as a classification just to classify types that has existed in all societies even the greeks plato plato had um, you know the philosopher king the soldiers the merchants and then the workers and even in our society today if you look at how society is uh, uh, divided there are the priests and uh, they are the topmost level then there are the military people the soldiers who guard they will be second third will be all the business community and fourth will be all the workers those those who are wage earners so there is a natural classification like that and if you ask why does that happen that happens because of these gunas 
Now, the Gita is advising us not to cultivate any particular guna. We should be above the gunas. That is gunatita. So, there are several models given. One in the second chapter, we were told about the sthita pragna, person who has a steady mind. Then we are told about the yoga rudha, the person who has ascended in yoga. In the twelfth chapter, we are told about the devotee, the bhakta. And in this chapter, we are told about the gunatita, one who has gone beyond the gunas. So, gunas are part of nature. The, it's the dynamic functioning of nature. And the self or the Atman, that is not influenced by the gunas. So this is the theory of the Upanishads, that our nature, our spiritual center, our spiritual reality, that is independent and that is always free. So, I make a simple example, you have this double-decker bus. So, in the lower deck, you have the driver, you have the conductor, you have passengers entering and exiting. That is the lower level. A higher level, you are just sitting there with less disturbance, you can sit and watch the scenery. So, that is somewhat like our higher self and our lower self. The part of us which is in nature, which functions, which interacts in this world, that is the lower nature and the higher nature, our spiritual self, that is more like an observer. And in the Upanishads, it is compared to two birds. Two birds are sitting on the same tree. One bird is eating fruits and the other bird is simply looking. So that is ex exactly what our consciousness is also structured like that. We also have one part of us which when we say eating fruit, it is like we are participating in this world, we are enjoying the world. And there is another part of us which is only watching, all the time watching what we are doing, how we are living our life, that is our own higher self. In Vedanta, we don't ex think of some separate reality, unlike religion. Religion says there is a God, God created and God is somewhere in heaven. But in Vedanta we say our own self, our own being has got these two levels. One side of us is the lower self that has all the conditioning, that has all the urges, that functions, that works through this mind and body complex and that is related to the world. And we have our own higher consciousness which is absolute, which is divine. So, there is no divinity outside of us. Everything is in our consciousness only. This is the, uh, the Upanishadic teaching. So, naturally, where do we look for, where do we seek? We seek in within ourselves only. And when we seek in ourselves, we have to sublimate. We have to sublimate the lower actions, act world of activity. That was dealt with in the Karma Yoga itself. That we have to do that karma, the necessity part of life, we, nobody can escape that. We have to deal with it. And then we have this higher consciousness where we find our peace, happiness and fulfillment, joy. That is Satchinananda. So, that is the paradox of life, that human being itself has these two aspects. 
and not knowing this people search for their happiness outside they don't realize that that goal that happiness is within themselves so there is a story about the musk deer there is a deer which has a gland and that gland gives out a very great nice perfume and the deer wanders all over the forest wondering where is this perfume coming from searching for the source of that perfume not realizing that that perfume is coming from within its own body its own being so human beings are also like that they have the source of joy and peace and happiness within them but they look for it all over so bhagavad gita tries to bring us back to the real source and uh, it presents krishna as an absolute as the absolute there are two words here absolute and relative absolute is one without a second and that is the goal for the seeker to reach the absolute and the relative is here the world of society in which we live where everything is high and low up and down and comes in opposites and it is all graded something is good something is not good something is high something is low etc so that is a relative world it's made of all kinds of grades all kinds of hierarchies all kinds of differences all kinds of varieties endless you can search the whole world still you will not be able to complete all the types of varieties there are so, so many and it's like a great field of enjoyment that is spread in front of everybody but the true absolute that we say absolute is one only unlike relative and absolute there is no grades there are no grades it is one only and it does not get affected by time or space in fact it does not even get affected by birth and death also so that's a very bold and very fearless statement of upanishads when they tell you that your true self your true being is beyond death beyond birth and death birth and death is happening in the phenomenal world in the world of appearance in the world of nature only but in the world of spirit there is no such fluctuation there is only the absolute so that is dealt with in the 13th chapter field and the knower of the field the field that is the world the elements that we see the five elements plus the mind also is part of the field in the western after science they think of mind as a separate entity as if there is something called mind but both in buddhism and in vedanta they don't accept the mind as anything real the mind is only a phenomena you may compare it to the moon the moon shines but the light of the moon is coming from the sun similarly the mind we can think we have thoughts we have feelings we have we have will power we do will, willing acting but the source of our consciousness that comes from the self that comes from the atman so mind itself is part of the field both in buddhism and in vedanta so if you want in the 13th chapter he talks about the great elements that is five elements 
earth, water, fire, air and akasha, ether. Ego, reason, buddhi, unmanifest, ten senses, one mind and five conceptual aspects of the senses, wish and dislike. So that is one aspect and then the psychological aspect, wish and dislike, pleasure and pain, organic aggregation, vital intelligence, firmness, this is the field. So that is one part of the field belongs to the physical world, the element, elemental world and the other part of the field is our own mind. So that whole thing belongs to the field and then there is knower of the field that is freedom from conventional pride, unpretentiousness, non-hurting, non-retaliating forbearance, straightforwardness, loyal support of the teacher, purity, steadfastness and state of self-withdrawal. So these are all characteristics or qualities, virtues you may say. So virtues that belongs to the knower of the field. So this distinction, if you want to see details, you should see the 13th chapter. So this 13th chapter is this distinction between the knower of the field and the field. For example, if a person is doing gardening, is interested in gardening, he or she makes a garden, let's say flower garden, but the person says, this is my garden and this is me, I am not the garden. Similarly, we create the field, our karmas, because of past action, we have created our own field. But we should recognize we are not the field. This kind of subtle distinctions are necessary. Similarly, we have the three gunas. Gunas belong to nature and then we have to realize the spirit is not part of the gunas. In a similar way, when you come to Daivi Asuri Sampati Vibhagi Yoga, you see, once we are born in this world, nobody is perfect. All human beings have some imperfections. If we were perfect, we would not be born. We would have been sitting in heaven or someplace. So here in the Daivi Asuri Sampati Vibhagi Yoga, that is chapter number 16, there is a difference between the higher and the lower values. So the demonic values are called lower and the divine values are called higher. So when he lists the divine values, he says fearlessness, transparency to truth, proper affiliation to unity wisdom, attitude of generous sharing, self-restraint, sacrifice, private perusal of sacred books, discipline, rectitude, non-hurting, truth, non-anger, relinquishment, calmness, self-integrity, compassion to beings, non-interest in sense values, gentleness, modesty, non-fickleness, alertness, forgiveness, fortitude, cleanliness, absence of malice, absence of excessive respectability. So these are all the list of the divine qualities. So a person can read this and compare himself or herself and see how many of these qualities that person has. So up to that extent a person is divine. And then there is the list of the demonic people and that is pretentiousness, arrogance, sense of self-importance, anger, harshness and ignorance. So these make up the demonic qualities. So somebody can 
analyze themselves, see if they have anger, if they have harshness, lack of kindness, if they think they are very important and if they are arrogant, then these make up the demonic qualities. And the demonic qualities make bondage, make a person get into bondage. And the divine qualities bring freedom. So that is another analysis. So you have to see analysis on the side of field and knower of the field, analysis of the three gunas, analysis of the demonic and the divine. So all these chapters are analytical chapters, which when you read them and analyze it, a person will get an idea of what sort of person one is, is. very honestly. Without any pretentiousness, one should have a very clear view of what sort of person that person is. Self-knowledge, this is known as self-knowledge. In the Vedantic system, it is self-knowledge and self-knowledge is nothing new. Socrates in Greece said also, know thyself. One should know oneself. And the text like the Gita, it helps a person to know his or her true self. Then in the Shraddhatraya Vibhaga Yoga, we have the three divisions of faith. That is, none of us are following any kind of religion very strictly. Nobody follows absolutely correct form of religion. They are following very strictly, they rigidly, they follow their uh, whatever their scripture teaches them. But most people, they have some practices in some ways they don't, they don't strictly practice. Arjuna wants to know what sort of religious practice or spiritual practice is, uh, do people have. So again the gunas come in. Depending on the gunas, people have that type of faith. Their faith is dependent on their gunas. If there is a sattvic person, that person will worship the gurus and worship, go to teachers. If that person is rajasic, then that person likes gods who are fierce and passionate. And if that person is tamasic, then that person goes for spirits and preta bhutas. He is fond of getting involved with spirits. As one's character, so is that person's faith. Just like a tree is recognized by its fruit. Similarly, faith is recognized by the type of guna. So that is the number 17. And finally, in 18, he comes to give a full analysis of the different types of thinking, reasoning, different types of acting and the different types of roles people play in society. Again it is based on the gunas. So if a person is firm-minded, if it's a sattvic firmness, he holds on to the right practice. If it's a rajasic type of firmness, then a person is holding on to something expecting the result because of result. And if it's a tamasic type of holding, then it's a mistaken, it's holding on to the wrong thing. Similarly in giving, if somebody gives a gift to the right person at the right time, in the right way, it is sattvic. If a person gives something with the expectation that I will get some benefit in return, or after giving it regrets, oh I should not have given it, then it's a rajasic. And if somebody gives to the wrong person in the wrong way, then it is tamasic. So in this manner, all our actions, our activities are governed by these gunas. And similarly, these gunas will also 
make the, the divisions of the society. So, the, those persons who are scholarly and who are pursuing knowledge, they will be the sattvic types. Those who are pursuing administration and uh, business etcetera, they are more rajasic type. So, this analysis again continues and based on these gunas, we see these varieties. Yet, our goal is not to cultivate any of these varieties, not to cultivate even the sattvic quality, the pure quality. Our goal is to go beyond this gunas and unify with the spiritual aspect of our life. And that spiritual aspect has been taught all over as something that has no beginning, has no end, that has no change, it has no time and any of these categories. It is abstract. So, it is to understand the abstract nature of the Absolute that we find Krishna comes as a representative of that Absolute and His words, when we meditate on His words, that should give us the insight into the nature of Absolute. The thing is, you cannot describe the Absolute in words because that is a paradox. If you describe something and you put a name to it, then it has become uh, static, fixed. But uh, Absolute is not fixed, it is dynamic. It is always fresh, it is always new. So, that is why you say it is the eternal present. It is always present. It is not the past, it is not the future. It is what is present in this moment, always moment to moment. And it never undergoes any change. So, we know evolution, theories of evolution, they describe how we have been created through change, through many, many million of years of evolution, human beings have developed. Also, we see our own society. I am my own age now. I can look back when I was a teenager and when I was a young person, how this country was and how things were and how much things have changed. Similarly, when your kids grow up, they will see everything completely changed. So, this world is always undergoing change, continuous change, jagat, that is the nature of the world, continuously changing. But the spirit in us, the self in us, the atman in us never changes. It is the same which was there thousands of years ago, it is the same which will be there another thousand years. That is why scripture, when we read uh, texts like the Bhagavad Gita, they introduce us to that changeless, unchanging, stable aspect of our life. And we need that stability. If you want to feel happy in life and without any change, without fluctuation, something that is steady in life, the only thing that is going to be steady is the self, wisdom of the self is the only thing in this life which would be steady. Everything else is going to change and everything else is subject to change. So, that is why the wise rishis and the wise yogis, they understood this difference and out of compassion they produced scriptures and ways to educate people that they should try and connect with the changeless, with the eternal aspect of themselves. That will give them the happiness that will never fluctuate, unfluctuating, steady. 
Anything else they fix their mind on will give them this ups and downs, pleasant for some time and then it will go away. Once it goes away, it leaves a void, it leaves an emptiness. There is this emptiness in people that they try to fill that emptiness with activity, try to fill that emptiness with relationship, friendship, whatever. But all those things will not last forever. And the only thing that lasts forever is this self. And the self can only be known through wisdom. It cannot be known through a ritual. In India, we have the Vedic culture. The Vedic culture was focused on rituals. And by doing rituals and propitiating, pleasing the gods, the Vedic people gained benefits. Whatever problems they had or whatever necessity, whatever they needed, their method was to propitiate the gods and the gods will bless you. When Vedas developed further, it became the Upanishads and from the Upanishads came the philosophy of Vedanta. The Vedantic rishis said that there is no point in having that kind of cyclic relationship with gods. It is better to have knowledge of the self, self-knowledge, Atma-jnana, Atma-jnana and Brahma-jnana, Brahma-vidya. These are the true salvation, the salvation of people is through this wisdom. In uh, religions like Semitic religions, let's say Islam or Christianity, they promise salvation in the next life. You live a good life here, a religious life, after you die, you go to heaven. So you postpone your happiness to the future. You say, I will live according to the scriptures and I feel peaceful. After I die, I will go to heaven. But Vedanta says there is nothing like that. You have to realize yourself here and now in this life itself. There is no heaven anywhere and there is nothing like that. But if you don't realize just like you fail in a class, you have to repeat it like that. You will you'll have to repeat this lifetime again and again till you understand the true meaning of life. You can discuss, is it so or is it not so? Nobody has come back and told us what happens after you die. That is eschatology. Buddhism also has a lot of eschatology about what happens after we leave the body. In the case of Vedanta, they say that the self in us, the Atma in us, the Atma has never had any birth and never will have any death. That came in the second chapter itself. Then there is Vasanas. There are conditionings in us. And because of those conditionings, past conditionings, from the past we carry, we bring with us many conditionings. And those conditionings make us act. They force us to act. So all the actions we are doing that is coming from what they call vasana. Deep in the subconscious mind there are these tendencies or incipient memories. And those from the unconscious they urge us, they create the motivation. And from vasana comes chaitanya, consciousness. From chaitanya comes manas, mind. From mind comes sankalpa. We imagine, we think, we will, we have willpower. We we act and that action leads to karma and karma leads to karma phala, consequences. So we cannot escape the consequences of our actions and therefore action was never considered to be as a very beneficial thing in the wisdom tradition. Of course, when you look at ordinary life, when we say we have to be active, 
we all everybody appreciates action but from the contemplative point of view or for the wisdom point of view action it's a necessary evil we have to act to preserve ourselves but there is no salvation in action by doing action nobody is going to gain wisdom for wisdom we need to apply the mind we have to think we have to educate ourselves and the method of education there is called shravanam mananam nididhyasana this is the technical methodology shravanam mananam nididhyasana so the ancient ideas we must remember that when these rishis were originally teaching there were no books and so they had to listen very carefully to the discourse if they missed any word then there was no way to go back and check so they had to give full attention to what that their teacher was saying so that was the first aspect shravanam listening after listening they had to reflect on what was heard what was said they had to think about it not receiving from one year and releasing from the other but they had to retain it in the mind and think about it think deeply pondering that is called mananam so shravanam listening mananam pondering and the third factor was nididhyasana that is realizing the truth of that teaching and that happens when the words that you had heard that you understand the meaning vak artha the meaning of those words we are just hearing words but what does it mean and to get the meaning of the word it takes a lot of pondering to understand the meaning of the word so that was the third stage so shravanam mananam nididhyasanam listening pondering and realizing that was a methodology and therefore a lot of importance was given to both the word and word spoken therefore word spoken from proper gurus or scriptures trustworthy source you had to pay attention from a trustworthy source not from any any source but from some very reliable source so scripture was considered to be reliable bhagavad gita is reliable upanishads are reliable vedantic texts shankara's texts reliable so take the ideas from those texts think about it and realize it this is the method of shravanam madanam nidhyasana on the gyan marg on the wisdom path on the religious path you have gods you have rituals you have the puja so that is a different method where you propitiate upasana you do upasana murti you have a image and you worship the image for vedantins that is only good for purification from that method you cannot get wisdom you cannot learn you cannot get realization by doing a ritual realization comes by this method of self analysis by knowledge and this knowledge which is a philosophical knowledge and that's why we were talking about this as a philosophical interpretation philosophy philosophy was the subject that all educated people learned for many many thousand of years in greece and in india education meant you studied philosophy there was no technology no engineering these are all modern subjects that have come only in the last 100 or 150 200 years before that every educated person studied philosophy so it is humanities study of philosophy meant studying the value of life what is the meaning of life and how to enrich life with certain values so it was value based 
with uh, 18th century European enlightenment, they introduced rationalism. Rationalism became more prominent or became very developed. They developed the rational faculties and with the help of the rational faculties and scientific understanding, a new method of gaining knowledge through observation and the scientific revolution, it changed the whole way in which human beings began to understand the universe. And philosophy became unimportant for them because this new science was giving so many new insights and so many new possibilities that the whole shift took place and all of human civilization started thinking in a scientific way. And that's fine, but when it comes to human fulfillment, the human peace of mind, satisfaction and values, you know that science has no values. Science can make an at atom bomb and science can also use the same atomic energy to make electricity also. But they don't differentiate, it's atomic energy. But science will give us atomic energy, but science will not tell us that this should not be done and this should be not done. That is the work of religion, values or morality. But religion itself has declined after the coming of science and philosophy too. But if you read Bhagavad Gita and most Indian thinking, it is, it is very philosophical, especially Upanishad and Vedanta. Vedanta. These are all philosophical schools. So philosophy gives us the meaning of life and a certain satisfaction that other subjects cannot give. But philosophy might not give us practical benefits, but it brings us a lot of emotional and intellectual and spiritual satisfaction by explaining the meaning of life and giving us values by which we can enjoy the higher consciousness that we all have. Science cannot take us to the higher consciousness. Religion can take it, but religion puts us in compartments. So you start rivalry begins, one religion versus another religion. So religion cannot be universal. Science is universal, but science does not have this aesthetic value. Science does not have transcendental value. That only philosophy has. And so we should have a experience, a transcendental experience also, because it is only in transcendental experience that we find the metaphysical part that we find the real meanings and orientation, the goal of our life and the meaning of our life that comes from the transcendental dimension. And to go to the transcendental dimension is the system of yoga and the system of Vedanta, the philosophies of India. They take us to the transcendental dimension. They show us how to do it. First, they give you an normative notion. They tell you that there is such a thing. After they've told you that there is such a thing, then they give a method of how to reach that. So it's purely through the mind. It has to be done, achieved through consciousness only, through thinking, through understanding, through knowledge. So that is why philosophy uses understanding, human understanding. Through understanding of the concepts, understanding of the teaching, one begins to understand the nature of the Absolute. So Brahmavit Brahmaiva Bhavati. This Brahmavidya brings us the knowledge, brings us the experience of Brahman.
Brahman is the word they use to explain absolute. If you are talking theology or religion, you will say God. But when you are talking of um, absolute or scientific thinking or philosophical thinking, then there is, then you don't say God, you say absolute or then you say Brahman. And Shankaracharya and others, they have developed these ideas and that's a long, long study, very, very minute study. But in his hymns, you have many hymns of by Shankaracharya, Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham Shivoham. My real uh, Rupa, my real form is Chit and Ananda, consciousness and bliss. And this blissful experience that comes only through transcendence, through the experience of Brahman. Through the senses we get pleasure, but pleasures cannot last forever. Even the best pleasure after some time, you get satiated, you have enough of it, you have to stop. But Brahman absolute bliss, that is unlimited, infinite. So one can always keep on experiencing that bliss without end. So that is endless. So these are the two dimensions, the finite and the infinite. Our world, we see, experience is finite. Everything here is limited. And when they talk of Brahman, that is infinite. That is like the universe, vast, vastness. You can say expansion. That is a consciousness is expanding when you are moving towards the Brahman. And consciousness is shrinking or contracting when you come to the individual. So it's just same consciousness. When it expands, it becomes universal. When it contracts, it becomes individual. So when you say I, I and me, it is contracting. When you say we and us, it is expanding. And when we say all of humanity, it expands completely. When you say all of the universe, it expands even more. And then you say only me, my interest, I'm, it's all about me, then you have contracted. So same consciousness, it functions in all these different forms. That is the thing, but the consciousness cannot be observed scientifically. That is the reason why science cannot reach consciousness. And it is only after the discovery of quantum physics that they, the physicists began to realize that there is an influence, conscious influence, that when we observe the world, we are changing the world also. So there is no world existing outside our own consciousness. Our own consciousness is modulating as the world. So these kind of ideas are very helpful in understanding our reality, the truth of existence. There is a truth and then there is an appearance. And what we see from our senses, it looks very real, empirical. You can measure it, you can weigh it, you can taste it, you can smell it, all those things, those are empirical. But where is its reality? Where does it exist? It exists only in consciousness. For example, you take a piece of cloth, you say it's a piece of cloth, but you look at it carefully, it is actually thread, made up of threads. So you say the reality is the thread, not the cloth. Then you look at the thread, you say oh, it's made up of cotton. So then you have to say cotton is the real thing, not the thread. And you look at the cotton, you say it's made up of fibers. Then you have to say fiber is the reality, not the cotton. And you look at the fiber, you say, oh, that is made up of atoms. So you say atoms is the reality, not the fiber. Then you look at atoms and you'll say, oh, subatomic particles, they are the reality. 
and then finally you will come to what? You will come to only consciousness. It is in your mind that you have these ideas. So it is only in our own mind that we create this whole universe. And mind, when you look for the mind, mind itself doesn't exist. So it is based on consciousness, Satchitananda. So that is the final step which they reach through self-analysis. They come to Satchitananda, existence, consciousness and value. In the Buddhist tradition, they came to Shunyata, emptiness, dependent origination. They are thinking consciousness arises when an object is presented. The moment I see an object, the consciousness also comes with it. And my consciousness then conditions the object. That is how they understand it. In Vedanta, it is Satchitananda. There is existence, Sat, there is consciousness, Chit, there is value, Ananda. In everything we do, I exist, the world exists, everything is existing. I can't doubt that. That is the Sat, the facts. It's a fact, that is Sat. I am conscious of it, that is Chit. I am aware of it, that is Chit. Then I have some value, I feel good about it, I don't feel good, I have some value, that is Ananda. Ananda is value. So everything has existence and that existence has a consciousness and the consciousness has a value, Satchit Ananda. So that is the final definition. If you say what is Brahman, Satchit Ananda. What is Atman, Satchit Ananda. Who am I, Satchit Ananda. On that Satchit Ananda, I have placed this social character, that is accidental. With the, with the conditions and with the karmic thing, we have created a social image, that is the changing, that is the Kshetra, the field. There we have a name, an address, and we have our role that we are playing. That is our accidental, that is the form. And what is the essence? The essence is Satchitananda, that is universal, this one Satchitananda. And when you look at the form, then there are billion, billions of different forms that even among human beings, everybody has a different fingerprint. Everybody is unique. So, billions and billions of unique forms. Satchitananda, only one. That is the Satchitananda. So, that is how from the multiple and the many and the varieties, we try to find the single, the universal. So, that is the journey. And Bhagavad Gita is a text which helps us to make that journey with the help of this, uh, the teachings, the chapters, the images. But Bhagavad Gita being an ancient text, it also has to deal with all the issues that were there when it was written. It was written many, many thousand years ago. At that time, there were issues, certain issues about what is sannyasa, what is tyaga, what is yoga, all that has to be revalued, it has to be restated, and all that is done here, very masterfully done. And in the middle sections, we are given an idea of what is the Absolute, that is in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Again, only through paradoxical language, we cannot define it is exactly like this, but we can express certain paradoxical ways. In 9th chapter, Krishna says, everything is in me, but I am not in them. So, this kind of statements are there, which we have to think about. It doesn't fit in logically. It's not a logical thing. And so, the higher self is not a logical thing. It is intuitive. Intuition must work. 
and for the intuition to work we have to bring two opposites to the mind so that they cancel out, the cancellation is necessary. In the world everything is made with polarization, opposites. If I have to see something, light must be there, I agree, everybody agrees, without light we can't see anything. But if there is only light we can't see, that light must have shade, shadows. When that light and shade, when they mingle, then the object is perceptible. So two opposites must mix, light and its opposite, shade, shadow, they must come together. This we can see in the artist, when a painter, when an artist is making an image, then he has to put white paint and then he has to put some grey paint next to it. Only by painting that contrast, by making that contrast, that figure will appear. If a person tries to paint a, a painting with white paint on a white canvas, you won't see anything. That white canvas, he has to put some black somewhere. And with the help of the black, you can see the image will come. Similarly, in life too, unless there is a contrast, nothing will show. Everything has to be in contrast. And not only physical things, also mental ideas also. They have to be contrasted. If we say rich, it is because we contrast it with poor. Anything we say, it is only in contrast with its opposite that it becomes a manifested thing. So, this opposite nature of the world has to be cancelled. It has to be eliminated and then the absolute is seen because the absolute is the meeting point of the two opposites. Just like water for instance, water should not have any color, should not have any taste, should not have any odor. Then you can make your tea and your coffee or your cold drink by mixing color and mixing flavor into that neutral substance. The water is the neutral substance. In that you are adding flavor and adding color and preparing your beverage. But to prepare that beverage, you need that neutral medium. Similarly, for our experiences, variety of experiences, there must be a neutral medium in consciousness. Consciousness has to have a neutrality. And in that neutral consciousness, we can then create whatever we want, whether it is pleasant, unpleasant, good, bad, happy, unhappy, funny, serious, whatever. All these are contrasts that we are creating on that neutral consciousness. And when we create that contrast, we forget that there is a neutral consciousness. Just like when we drink our coffee, we enjoy the flavor. We ignore the neutral substance which made it possible for that beverage to exist. Similarly, we have a neutral consciousness which is making it possible for having all these varieties.